Hey, yeah. Hey, guys, have a seat. Welcome to Awaken. Uh, my name is Andrew Roberts, and I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I was woken up by my three-year-old redhead at 6.30 a.m. Somehow during the night, he'd managed to sneak in bed. I don't know how. I was unconscious for that part. Um, but I woke up to him just jumping up. And I don't know if he was dreaming. I don't know if he was just really excited about today. But he just jumps up and said, hey, guys, what are we doing today? And I just, like, grabbed him. And I'm, like, cuddling. <laughs> like, we're cuddling. Like, our relationship isn't doing anything right now at 6.30 a.m. We were actually just going to cuddle. Um, and so I got about another 20 minutes of sleep before, you know, you can't really contain a three-year-old so you just got to wake up and get the day going. And I think that's, I share that because I think that kind of kicks off week three of our series on, on just relationship and relationship with Jesus Christ. And a lot of times what happens in our world and what happens when we become Christians and what happens in church is kind of we get introduced to this character, this person named Jesus. We believe in him. And then all of a sudden, everything that we now have to do is following him and what are his expectations and what do I have to do to be a good Christian or to look like Jesus? And, and I think that that's phenomenal. But I think one of the things we do also is we kind of miss the relationship there. We can turn our faith into what do I have to do for Jesus instead of how do I just get to know Jesus better? How do I get to know and have a relationship with him? And so these are the two questions that, that we struggle with in church, that we struggle with personally. Who is Jesus and what should I do to follow him? What does he expect? And I would, I would just like to say that I think we get it flipped sometimes in church. We spend way more time, mental energy, emotional energy, trying to figure out what should I do to follow him or what does he expect? And we spend way less time just trying to immerse ourselves in the story of who he is and what he's done. And so again, I shared earlier that this is uh, week three of our series called Unexpected Savior. And as uh, pastors, we want to immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus. And so we looked at what that looked like for him to be the word of God two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at what it looked like for him to be an illegitimate son. This week, we're going to look at what does it look like for him to be the son of God. Also, this is a Q&A series, so what that means is we're going to tackle questions um, for the last five minutes of uh, our time. So if you have thoughts or questions or, you know, you, you have a, you're wondering about something, just text that in, uh, awakenqna at gmail.com, and we'll tackle those at the end. Um, just ask that you kind of make them pertinent to what we're teaching about. Um, so no crazy questions. Um, and if you do have a crazy question, then maybe send it in and we'll tackle it as pastors, but we'll do it with you one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So what are we going to do this morning is look at this title, Son of God, because it crops up over and over again in the scriptures that Jesus is called the Son of God. So what does it really mean? I mean, what, what does that mean? That's foreign to us, but it wasn't foreign to the people living in the Roman Empire several thousand years ago, and it wasn't foreign to the Jews. 
So we're just going to explore that, and we're going to explore that by just looking at the Gospel of Mark. Um, so we're going to kind of zoom out from the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to, like, do a deep dive into a lot of the stories. We're actually going to just look at, like, three or four verses that use that story, and we're going to stitch them together. And so the Gospel of Mark, um, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with some of, like, how did we get this Gospel of Mark, um, it was written by John Mark, who was a witness to some of the things that happened in the life of Jesus, but he didn't witness the cross and he didn't witness the resurrection. One of the things that he did witness, though, was um, in the garden when everyone came and grabbed Jesus and all the disciples fled, Mark kind of puts his cameo in there and he kind of says, I was the young boy and they tried to capture me. They tried to grab me too, but I threw off my cloak and ran away naked. That's kind of how we're introduced to Mark. That's how Mark introduces us to himself, that he's this young boy, again, probably early teenager, and he got away from the guards by running away naked. I mean, that's a great way to lend credibility to your authorship, right? I was there and I ran away naked. It's actually going to become a theme later on. And Mark is sharing that because I think he's, later on, he's going to run away again. But this time he's not a teenager. This time he's a young man in his early 30s. And he's on a mission trip and he runs away again. And Mark's challenging us as we see these brief glimpses of him in the story of the Bible is that a lot of times Mark knows the story of Jesus he has the relationship with Jesus, but he runs away. I mean, I think that's us sometimes. We have a relationship with Jesus, but things happen and, and we just run away. And Mark is now writing this, and Mark's done running. And he's bringing the gospel. He's writing this gospel to us. And we're not sure when exactly it's written. There's two theories. One is that Peter was in Rome in, in the 50s. Um, and so they think that, hey, Mark was with him um, and his traveling companion, his interpreter, and this is when the gospel is written. The other theory is that it's actually in the 60s when Peter was killed in Rome under the rule and reign of Emperor Nero when a great persecution broke out. Peter was killed and Mark is left trying to figure out how do I write the story of Jesus Christ so that people can have a relationship, can know him to the church that is being persecuted, who've just lost, arguably, two of their best preachers in Peter and Paul. So one of the cool things that happens in this time is, you know, Rome is the center of the world right now. I mean, all roads lead to Rome. It is the nexus of the Mediterranean. And so it's also one of the kind of capitals of art and literature. And one of the one of the crazy things that's going on, people are buying them left and right, are these things called bios. It's like, what's that? Well, a lot of people were writing just famous lives of philosophers, of kings, of all these things, and we know them today as biographies. Our bookstores are chock full of them as well. Biography on a great business person so that you can have an awesome business biography on a great leader so that you can grow in character. This isn't anything new. And Mark is saying, hey, the early church needs a biography. 
of Jesus Christ. And so he starts writing these things down in their collection of things. When you look at Mark, like in a literary style thing, you get this, it's, it, it's a collection of all these short stories. In fact, some people say that there's 157 short stories within the gospel of Mark. Again, it's a very small book. It's only 16 chapters. You can read the entirety of the gospel of Mark in less than an hour out loud. I mean, isn't that amazing that God has given us the full story of Jesus Christ and we can read it in less than an hour and make an informed decision? I think that's phenomenal. 157 different shifts. And so how do we know this? Well, it's really cool. I'd love to read for you guys a quote from Papias of Hierapolis. It's an awesome name for your kids if you're thinking about it. Um, a church father um, from the second century. And this is what he writes. And it's cool. He writes this because he actually listened and had conversations with John, the disciple who followed Jesus. And he writes, the elder used to say, and the elder refers to John, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory, though not in an ordered form, of the things either said or done by the Lord. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but later, as I said, Peter, who used to give his teachings in the form of Crei, but had no intention of providing an ordered arrangement of the Logia of the Lord. Consequently, Mark did nothing wrong when he wrote down some individual items just as he related them from memory, for he made it his one concern not to omit anything he had heard or to falsify anything. So it's an amazing record of how the gospel is written by Mark. Peter's interpreted is that from the teachings, from the sayings, from the time he'd spent with Peter, he had a huge collection of stories. And Mark's concern was that he would not write fake news and he would write true news. And so he wrote them all down. I love how the, the point isn't to have like a perfect accurate chronological order. In fact, that was never like the purpose of literature in the ancient world. Somehow it's ours. The purpose was accurately conveying truth. And so Mark does this and he does it well. He does it in 16 chapters. And he starts with this verse in Mark 1.1. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Mark 1.1. Um, and we're going to just look at, this, look at this verse. There's so much meaning here that if we miss all of the loaded context of this one verse, we're going to miss the entire purpose of the gospel. And this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Many scholars believe that this is actually the title of the biography that Mark is writing. It probably really shouldn't be as like the first verse, but it should just be the title. The beginning is interesting in Greek. It's arhi, but it also translates as first things, as the essentials, as the elements. So what Mark is trying to say is, hey, this is the first things that you should know about Jesus Christ. These are the essentials, the bare essentials. Again, this whole series that we're doing as pastors is about knowing the story of God. It's about knowing Jesus. 
We're not trying to jump into what we should do for Jesus. We're trying to just soak in the story. The second is the gospel. Again, we hear this term all the time. Good news in Greek, euangelio. What is good news? I mean, for us, we hear like, oh, good news is like, it's like winning a battle back in the day. Or it's like getting a good report or a great like first quarter profit for your corporation. But that's not what good news meant back then. In fact, if we think that's what good news meant back to them, we miss the context of the gospel. And so what did good news mean back then? So I'd love to turn your attention to um, something they discovered in Prien, Turkey. It's a calendar inscription. They discovered in the marketplace, these calendar inscriptions were scattered all over the marketplaces in the cities in the ancient world where people traded, where people came. The very center of people's daily life held these inscriptions. This is what it says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus signaled the beginning of the good news for the world because of him. I know for most of you, like history might not be your jam, um, actually, Friday night, I was just sitting on the couch, and my wife was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching a Netflix special. <laughs> She's like, what? I was like, yeah, it's on the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in the Korean War. And she's like, you're weird. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I am. Like, I just like history. I was learning about it. And we need to recognize that Rome went through a crazy civil war after the death of Julius Caesar and his adopted son, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, he actually won that civil war and was proclaimed as inaugurating the Pax Romana. The good news that all of humanity needed to hear was that there was now one ruler, one emperor in charge of Rome and that he was gonna bring peace everywhere through the might of the Roman military machine and that he was going to establish order. There would be no more war and pain and suffering if you just submitted to Rome. This is the good news. One person is ruling and reigning over all the known world. And this is what people in the Roman Empire were faced with. This was their context of good news. Uh, a few other uh, pictures there. You can see um, from just Roman sculpture, this is the divine Augustus. He's sitting, he's ruling and reigning from a position of strength. And this is the Roman rule at the time of Christ. You can see it, it spans everywhere the Mediterranean touches as well as into much of Europe and Africa and some of the Middle East. We're just halfway through verse 1-1. It's awesome. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Isu Christu in Greek, which does two things for us that are really important. The first is it locates Jesus. Isu was a Hebrew name 
translating into Joshua, translating into God saves or Yahweh saves, God is salvation. So we know that Jesus is a Hebrew. We know what his name means. We know that he lived in Palestine. He's a historical figure just from this name alone. And it's a historical figure with a lot of weight behind what his name means. The second is Christu, Christ. It's not his last name. Christ is this title in Greek that meant anointed one. It has an even deeper meaning because in this time, the Jews adopt this title for the person who's going to come and set everything right. For the purpose, for the, the, for the person who's going to actually come and throw off Roman rule. They believe the person with the title of Christ will be the Messiah. And then the last word, the Son of God. That the Son of God would be a rightfully earned title. Rightfully earned from God. Not needed to be earned from anywhere else except for God. And I'd love to go back to look at how Augustus, how Caesar Augustus earned his title. There's an image up there that you'll turn your eyes to. Again, Caesar Augustus won through military might, but then after he won through military might, what did he do? He started spreading propaganda, marketplace inscriptions, coinage, art, architecture. This is his face on one side of a coin. On the other side of the coin, it's Latin, divine son of Julius. So how does Caesar Augustus claim his divinity? He spreads it through the propaganda machine of the Roman Empire. Let's begin to contrast this with how Jesus Christ earns the title Son of God. To do that, we have to go a long ways in Mark, 10 verses. That's what I love about Mark. Things are so fast-paced. Things are happening all the time. 10 verses down, we're going to look at Mark 1.11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. I take pleasure in you. The sonship that Jesus Christ has was not coined, was not part of propaganda. Heavens were opened and a voice declared that this was the son of God, bestowing identity, bestowing belovedness, and bestowing delight. All these things God the Father passed on to the Son before his ministry even started. Jesus Christ hadn't done anything of note. He hadn't raised dead people. He hadn't healed the sick. He hadn't casted out demons before he does anything. Son of God is given to him as a title, as an identifier, as a communication of love and delight. So I think that's a phenomenal that the sonship of Jesus Christ does not come from the works that he did. That should be triggering some amazing theology going on in our heads right now. 
as children of God, as children of God, that's not predicated on our works. It's going to be predicated on what Christ does for us. So two things, and this is what I love about Mark. If you're a Jewish reader reading Mark, you're thinking, oh my gosh, the heavens have just split open. A voice has come down and communicated sonship on Jesus. You're getting excited and giddy because you know the Old Testament. The Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, God promises David that he will have a son who will rule the royal line and be king of Israel forever. Already, this is signs of the Messiah, signs of Christ. Then you have in Psalm 2, 7, that God says that the nations and the kings of the world will bow down and be subject and submitted to Jesus Christ. Two intersection points for us that I'd love for you guys to think about. Um, Sometimes we can get to know the story and, and know theology, but then how do we make that apply to our lives? And again, the primary purpose of today is we want to know the story. We want to know Jesus Christ. But what are some takeaways that we can have even as we do this? First is parenting. I think it's important even for me as a parent, I've been a parent for several years now. Does your parenting communicate delight to your children? Because God chooses to communicate delight to his son, even before his son had done anything. As parents, are we communicating delight to our children? Or are we communicating frustration, anger, the stresses of our lives going to them? That's a great challenge for us. Um, For me, I shared earlier one of the ways that my wife and I have tried to do this, because it's a challenge, parents is we just try to be affectionate with our kids. Our kids are really little right now, and so we have that, that season where we can just be really affectionate to them. Um, that was something that, like, my wife definitely led the charge in. I wasn't, I would say I wasn't a super affectionate person, but I've been learning about it. Um, I know that might be hard for you guys. Some of you guys might come from, from different family dynamics where affection wasn't necessarily practiced a lot when you were growing up. For me, that was true. My dad wasn't the super affectionate guy. He's grown in that a little bit. Actually, now it's kind of like scary. Like sometimes he like hits you or he like bear hugs you. And I'm just like, dad, come on, man. Like, but you guys, as parents, you have that gift, the ability to be super affectionate. Um, as kids get older, it's more challenging. I, I can speak from a son from this point, right? My dad wasn't the super affectionate guy, but he found a way to show delight and his kids, and and one of the ways that he did that was he was just generous. He was just generous with some of his time, generous with some of his money, even to the point where, like, sometimes he just, I remember being in high school, and, you know, you got a lot of big things going on in high school. In hindsight, I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) Nothing major was going on in high school. But I had a job, I was working, had a car, and sometimes he would just be like, hey, here's 20 bucks to go hang out with friends. Or here's 20 bucks to fill up your gas can. He didn't need to give it to me. But it was a sign of delight. He wanted for his kids to have fun. 
Those are just two ways that you can express delight with your children as parents. I would challenge even that it's not just a parenting thing, but it's also a relationship thing. Maybe you don't have kids yet, but you have close friends. How do you delight in friendships around you? 